Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you're in the right place. My guest this episode was a number one top producer and leader at a $2 billion staffing firm for over 14 years. She's been invited to speak to global organizations, including Google, Workday, Johnson & Johnson, and J.P. Morgan Chase. You may have also seen her in Forbes, Real Simple, or Fast Company. She is a two-time TEDx speaker and is publishing her first book, Good Awkward, coming out this September. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Hannah Pryor. doing today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good to meet I'm, you. I'm well. I'm excited to have you on. I know from doing a, a little bit of research, we have two cool things in common, Ted Lasso fans and live uh -huh. music fans. Uh-huh. Um, uh -huh. So I wanted to ask, what's the last live music you saw? The last one? Uh, I guess what was the last one? We took the kids to see Dua Lipa earlier right. in the year. So I think that was the last one. Yeah. Fun. Nice. Rock on. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. And do you have a favorite Ted Lasso quote? Uh... Oh God. How do we pick? It's like picking my favorite child. Um, it's the <laughs> one, my, I think my favorite one is something about like riding, riding a horse should be uncomfortable. And if you, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing it right. Right. As a metaphor <laughs> for life, like life should be like riding a horse. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing it right. right. Something like that. I like, I like that one. That is a good one. Um, so I wanted just uh, to start with, a, you know, a few of those. Love those two things. So I wanted to, to jump into some personal stuff before we got into yeah. your amazing professional stuff as well. Uh, to give our audience a bit of background, um, you spend a lot of time in the recruiting world, in the finance world. Can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of led you to what you do now with the priority group? Yeah, sure. So I uh, started my career in public accounting, which people, when they meet me, they're like, really? Yeah, really. So I was a finance major at Delaware. I went to Ernst & Young, which is a large big four public accounting firm. They paid for my master's degree. Um, why I became an accountant was because my parents wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, firstborn child of immigrants. I was like, no, none of those. How about <laughs> finance? So that was my my concession. Um, you know, I loved being a finance major, but pretty quickly I worked three years at Ernst & Young and realized public accounting was not for me. I had just too much personality, I think, to be an auditor, which surprises no one. So when I was looking to switch careers, I had met with a former manager of mine from Ernst & Young, actually went and became a recruiter at K-Force, which is a large um, publicly traded staffing firm. And she said, well, why don't you do this? This is a job where you can use all your finance and accounting acumen, your knowledge, but it's a people job. It's sales. You get to sure. talk to people all day. And of course, you know, firstborn daughter of immigrants was like, I can't do that. I have a CPA and I, you know, all these things, I can't be commissions. She said, why not try it? So 14 years later, I tried it and uh, <laughs> it was the best experience of my life, of my career. And I, um, you know, I'm really grateful and humbled to say that if you're good at sales, success is easy to come by, you know, if you have a knack for it. And so in my 20s, I was like, what has been the rest <laughs> of my life, right? This yeah, is yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but then 14 years in, you know, I would say actually about 12 years in, 
I was still doing very well financially. I was still very successful there. I had a great gig as far as, you know, my kids were born in that career, babies and toddlers. They were very flexible with me. On paper, I had the perfect gig, but there was something, a voice in me that couldn't stop mm. niggling saying, hey, you're capable of more than this. You're capable of more than this. I know it's comfortable. I know it's what you know. I know it's been good to you, but you are capable of more. So after trying to beat that voice down for two years, I finally listened to it and pivoted to entrepreneurship. I went and got my executive coach certification. So I started doing more one-on-one which morphed to facilitation, which morphed to keynote speaking. And now I kind of do all of those things, but that leads me to where I am now with the business. Love it. I just wanted to get a little bit more depth. And I know I was re-watching one of your TED Talks yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, Irony, I literally that yesterday morning had given my child a Capri Sun. So (laughs) I I was, you know, I'm like, oh, I forgot. She started this way. Um, But why awkwardness is your secret weapon for risk taking? Um, Absolutely love it. And I like the way you present uh, really the gap that we can kind of create. But can you talk a little bit about the approval mindset? And so how easily sometimes we can start to be led into that versus our growth or improvement mindset. Yes, I love it. So thank you for watching it. Um, and I'm I'm knee deep in this work right now because the TEDx is now, you know, expanded to a book that's going to be out in September. But, you know, I, I refer to these two mindsets. Awkwardness really exists at this gap space. So I'll quickly kind of define awkwardness to give us some shared language through the lens of today. And then we'll talk yeah. about the approval thing. But we feel awkward when the person we believe ourselves to be, right? Our true selves comes in odds with the version of ourselves that's on display at a given moment. So, you know, let's just use a really tactical example. I'm walking through the mall and I think I'm somebody who's generally graceful and I whack myself on a, you know, rack and I hurt myself and I scream ow and people are all staring and I suddenly feel awkward and embarrassed and flushed because in that moment, the person I believe myself to be this somewhat put together human being is at odds with the person who they all see on display, this, you know, idiot that doesn't know how to walk, right? right? Awkward. That can happen in unplanned moments, just life moments. We can also feel right. awkward in planned moments where at work, you know, we raise our hand, we have a great idea and all of a sudden nobody's as excited about our great idea as we are. And there's silence and we're like, okay, right? This is awkward. Nobody's into this. But it's that same experience where the person we believe ourselves to be is suddenly at odds with all of a sudden who we think they see. And so when we think about the approval mindset, it's really that part two of the equation. It's our hyper focus on the version of us that we think they see. We start to behave in ways because we're social creatures, we're tribal, you know, community creatures. We behave in ways that make that feel like less of a threat. How do we, you know, show up in the world so that we are able to stay safe in our social circles? How do we stay stay in a position where if we step out of line, that we will still be loved, included, worthy, you know, considered intelligent? And especially at work, what I see a lot is that approval mindset, it controls people. It prevents them from raising their hand. It prevents them from taking micro risk and macro risk. And so the big danger is, it keeps us stuck. It keeps yeah. us from doing the things that we need to do to advance our careers and our lives. 
I think a lot of listeners on this podcast, student athletes, coaches, yeah, um, myself included, in in my experience, uh, sought out a lot of external expectations and approval yeah. through sport. Um, yep. Does it, it? It there's some healthiness to being approved by your tribe and your people, right? And there's some in relationships and where that goes. When does it get to the point where it hinders our development mm, and our improvement? Yeah. When does it kind of like, as you said, kind of steer us wrong? Yeah. And, and so you're right. I want to just honor what you just said, which is being social creatures means to a degree, we need to learn how to be people who live in a society, right? So that feeling of awkwardness is what tries to protect us from being ostracized, right? We do need to be cooperative. We want to fit in. We don't want to create waves. Our caveman brains were designed that way because if we stood out, we didn't stay in the tribe. We got killed. We got ostracized, right? Yep. So same brains that we have today. So these are conditionings that we have from caveman era on. That's fine when we're trying to live harmoniously with our peers. Where it becomes problematic is when, you know, I, I kind of have this visual of a scale, right? Mm -hmm. When there's something that we as humans, whether we're athletes, whether we're professionals, whether we're performers, when we really want to see our lives go in a certain way, when we really want that scale to tilt towards improve, and that improvement might require a little bit of zigging where others are zagging, if we get super hyper-focused on the approval, if we let that outweigh, then we'll never take the necessary chances to try to do it a little differently, to take the bigger risk, to take the bigger ask, to you know sign up for the competition that feels just out of reach. We won't because the approval mindset will outweigh it every time. So it's really a, a moment of inflection, right? Which yeah. one wins right now? We have to have that conversation with ourselves regularly. And I think it, the way you presented the the risk in your example mm. of you know correcting someone with you know calling you Helen um, yeah. <laughs> versus versus the the other risk. I, I think sometimes we forget that there is risk either way. And yeah. sometimes we get steered by this approval mindset by taking the one that makes us maybe not feel awkward and, and right. stay in our little safe space. Uh, the one thing you talked about too, that I, I thought was great for athletes and just growth and coaches is acknowledging we're going to have these ick moments. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about ick moments and um, yeah. how we uh, accept them to, to help yeah. ourselves? Yeah. So ick moments are what I call those moments when we're standing at the edge of the cringe chasm. So just to, to kind of back into it a little, you know, when we're standing here on the approval side of the coin, it's nice and safe and warm over here. Everybody likes us over here, right? But sometimes again, when we've made that little mental weight decision about improvements on the other side over there. And I know I need to get there. We've got to put a little jump. We've got a little chasm, a little gap to cross. So ick moments are when you're standing on the edge of that approval side and you're thinking, oh God, this doesn't feel good. I have a pit in my stomach. I'm nervous. I'm sweating. I feel very uncomfortable. People are watching me do this right now. It might be awkward. It might be embarrassing. I might fall down the thing. But ick moments are when you remind yourself. So ick is actually I-C-C and it stands for improvement comes after cringe. So improvement comes after cringe. It's 
just a little priming reminder that when you're standing at the edge and you make that little jump, when you put, find the, the activation energy, the muscle to say, I'm just going to try this thing. Yeah. It doesn't have to feel amazing, but I'm going to try it anyway to constantly remind yourself, this is an ick moment and improvement will come after the cringe. When I get to the other side of that feeling, there's improvement. So just that framing, I think sometimes help people find the energy needed to jump that chasm and get to the other side. Definitely. You uh, talked about the book coming out in September. Uh, yeah. What are you most excited about? I know you put a lot yeah. of work, heart and soul into it. What are you most excited uh, as it meets other people in the world? Yeah, I think what I'm most excited about is, you know, I say this very humbly. I did not want to write a book that was already written, right? Like there's so many books about get comfortable being uncomfortable or play at your, you know, growth edge, get out of your comfort zone. We know yeah. that narrative, right? We know that one. And so one of my personal commitments to myself was I didn't want to write something unless it really illuminated a fresh take or fresh perspective mm -hmm. on an emotion and the specific way that this emotion impacts our performance. And so I'm really proud of the fact that it's a really fresh take on things. And when I teach it to people and they read stuff, they're like, I didn't honestly know any of this about the feeling of awkwardness. I didn't realize this is where it came from. I didn't realize this is why it's sticky and why it doesn't go away easily and why I dwell on it and ruminate on it. Um, but there's been some, you know, our shared friend, Colin Henderson, he likes to make fun of me because I love sparkly new research. Like I get my jollies over sparkly new research yeah. and there's some cool sparkly new research about how dangerous it is to perform to others' expectations or cater to others' expectations versus to find our own intrinsically motivated way of showing up in the world. So for athletes, again, you need that motivation from all sides for sure. But somebody who is internally motivated by a way that feels really organic to them will hand over fist always perform somebody who is only, you know, meeting the performance expectations that's coming from the outside. Always. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of data around that. Um, yeah. And now they're finding the same thing to be true in the workplace too, that performing actually hurts our performance when you actually are catering to others versus tapping into your own authentic intrinsic motivation. And so there's just some new stuff around that, that I'm excited for people to learn. That's what I love uh, just the topic of being authentic. And I think yeah. some, cause we do chase approval mindsets and, and let people put us in boxes sometimes and things like that. Um, and I think that's, Leadership, great leadership, I think requires that a level of authenticity. And yeah. uh, where do you see when I hear you talk and I hear your your TEDx and listen to things, you know, a bit of awkwardness kind of makes the most authentic people I know have like a yeah. quirk, maybe a quirkiness, I would call it. Um, yeah. But still, they're very okay with themselves, whether they hit the clothing rack or trip on the curb, mm -hmm. um, so to speak. But how can awkwardness help us? be more authentic with those or, or maybe we're trying to lead? Yeah, I love that question. So, you know, one of the assertions or let's even call it like the backbone of the book is that it is a fool's errand to try to eliminate awkwardness in our lives. It's not going to happen. And a lot of us continue to try, like we try to make it so our lives eliminate awkwardness. We're really the key to true confidence, to true courage is embracing it instead, getting comfortable with it, leaning into it. And so what I want people to walk away with is that, you know, whatever that smooth, 
effortless, unblemished confidence that seems to emanate off of certain, you know, professional athletes or movie stars or leaders in the business that we admire, I'll never have it. Like it's not even a, not even a goal worth trying to reach for that smooth, untouchable, um, like not a chance. And I feel like most people I talk to feel the same way. They're like, that just feels it's never happening for me. That's just not who I am. And so what I want people to know is available to them is what I call in the book, awkward confidence, a grounded confidence. It's not mm. trying to be unblemished. It's leaning into the blemishes and using them purposefully, intentionally as part of your persona, as part of your competitive edge and learning to befriend them and embrace them. Most people look at me and it still makes me laugh is very confident. And it's not that I've worked out any of those bumpy, jaggy edges. My God, no. In fact, I think they're even more on display than ever in my life. But I have befriended them. And that translates to people as an accessible, grounded confidence. And so that's sure. what I would love more people to aim for rather than this sort of flawless standard that no one can actually meet. Yeah. And I think the, where do you see approval yeah. In alignment with the chase of chase of perfection. Yeah, I think that's the heart of it. I think most people as again social creatures worry that if they don't do it right that they will lose approval, they will lose their standing, you know. I try to make a distinction very early in the book that awkwardness is not the same as ineptitude, right? Mm -hmm. I'd be, you know, I I mentioned there that I would be uh, nervous if I hired an inept anesthesiologist, but I would be perfectly fine hiring an awkward one, right? So we're not talking about ineptitude. We're not talking about a, a lack of skill or a lack of competence. Right. We're talking more about just an ability to understand that life is inherently jagged. We are inherently bumpy and blemished, and that's part of the journey. And understanding that this fear of losing approval is often inflated, right? So not to nerd out too much, but Tom Jelovich from Cornell, he calls it the spotlight effect where we think people are lasered in on these blemishes, on these imperfections, and that we're gonna lose approval because they're looking at them so closely when the reality is they're not. They're more worried about whether we think they look awkward or whether we right. approve of them. So it's just really understanding how those things play out and how they stop us in the future. I love it. One of the things that... uh also caught my mind a lot of my experience working with teams and student athletes and coaches is getting them to align their core values and what they're doing to their goals mm -hmm. and their actions. And uh, you had a quote that you mentioned and it says alignment makes it possible. And yeah. I'm a big believer. And I think I came from the football world where football coaches tell you alignment assignment, nowhere to Ooh, be okay. and know what, nowhere to be, know what to do. That's the first yeah. that, you know, and so it's like, because if you're not aligned and know what to do, how are you going to achieve what we're we're trying to do? Um, yeah. Why is alignment with understanding who we really are and what we're trying to do in the world or provide in the world so important? Yeah, you know, I love I love your of that, and I love the alignment assignment thing. I'm like, how can I use that? How can I use that in the future? Uh, aligning with your values is how you're going to know which cringe chasms are worth crossing right? Not every chasm is worth crossing. And so if you are going to find the muscle to jump this particular cringy mo moment, you need to know which direction you're going to. So I don't recommend people just blindly throwing themselves into situations where they're, you know, going to 
cringe regularly for no real reason, right? Part of using this idea of awkwardness as a catalyst for risk-taking is knowing where you're headed. And so to me, values are directionality, right? What, what is important to you? What drives you? What motivates you? And when you're very clear on those, and plenty of people aren't, I'm sure you know, Tyler, like plenty of people aren't, but when you're clear on what those are, you will find that the muscle behind that cringe chasm jump will come more readily. It will feel more easy to make it over the hump in those moments because you can see clearly why you're doing it. It's very visible to you on the other side. When we're just blindly doing it in the absence of values, we kind of feel all the discomfort of awkwardness without the upside, without the why, without the purpose. So I think it does need to be defined by our purpose and values in order to be worth it for us to feel like it's worth enduring that feeling. The the coach mind in me heard you say muscle. So it makes yeah. me think you can, with repetitions, we can become better at this. Yes. I love that you said that. Cause that is, that is the action that there, you know, I always say just like building physical muscle, building awkward tolerance is a mental muscle. It is a mental muscle. <laughs> 100%. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, I was going to ask, uh, we're going to play a game with, I know, you know, several of my past guests, so we're going to play a game one mm -hmm. word, but, uh, one of the okay. things, uh, that one of those people we're going to talk about Travis Thomas, that I oh, really yay. Know. Okay. um, you know, he talks about yes. And in acceptance. And I think mm -hmm. whether it's a mistake in the professional world or a mistake in sports, um, how does it, how do you see acceptance playing in a role and being able to take the jump over the yeah, we're we're brain matching here because I have an entire chapter in my book about one of the fastest way to condition for awkward is having an improv mentality where I interviewed <laughs> Travis as part of it. So yeah, we're, we're right on the same page there, 100%. I think one of the fastest ways you can get comfortable with awkwardness is understanding that you cannot avoid it. And that is an acceptance philosophy. So if you think about improv, nothing is necessarily laid out for you, right? Yeah. Every next sentence has the potential to invite awkwardness. So when we talk about conditioning your muscle to prepare your mental muscle, improv is one of the fastest ways to do that because you know you think something is coming next and the goal of your partner is to literally catch you off guard, right? To literally make it so that you're unprepared for what comes next. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think what that exercise, the, the practice of improv forces of you is accepting what is in the moment, accepting the discomfort of the unknown in the moment, expecting the inevitable awkwardness that accompanies it, but then starting to normalize that feeling, starting to make it feel less big and take the power out of it. But I agree hundred percent. I think if you can't accept the reality of what is, if you can't embrace the inevitability of what is, it's going to stop you every time. There's no getting through it. Yeah. I'm excited for that chapter, especially with a little, <laughs> little Travis name drop in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one other thing uh, I wanted to ask you before you have a little fun as well to wrap up, but, uh, you know, and you kind of you talked early on about, you know, your career and, and where you've gone and what you do now. Uh, what brings you the most joy in the work you get mm -hmm. to do now? Mm -hmm. um, and Oh, boy. Big question. What brings me the most joy? Um, I mean, I'm an extrovert through and through. So I have a job that I get to meet new people like you. I, I meet people and, and talk to people constantly. So for someone who receives energy from interacting with others, it's just a blessing to get to be a you know speaker, coach, and facilitator and get to meet new people, talk to new people. 
I think more than anything, my, my biggest joy moments are when someone tells me that something I've taught them or something I've said has had a serious transformational effect on their life. And it's okay. funny that, you know, and I'm sure this is hundred percent the case with coaches too. Sometimes it's that one thing, just that one thing, that one insight, that one story, that one something that they saw themselves in, that's the catalyst that changes everything. And so sure. when those moments happen, it's, you know, I'm smiling for days. I really enjoy that feeling. I'm grateful anytime I get to see it and experience it. They, you must do it pretty well because I know they have, what do they uh, call you? The something of break doing the impossible. Oh, well, yeah. You, you've Se got a, a secret weapon secret for weapon. impossible change. <laughs> yeah, you are the secret weapon for impossible change. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure our listeners, if they've been listening, they, they can start to identify some of those things themselves. I love it. Um, but what, uh, is it the people that you think sometimes are missing? It's a secret weapon relationships. What is some of the yeah. secret weapon sauce that, that you sure. think or you observe maybe teams and organizations yeah. missing? Uh, it can be a lot of things, but I would say that to me, at least the people that I attract to work with or the people that I like to work with, the people that I like to work with already have a bias for action. So for them, it's not that they struggle to take action. For them, there always seems to be some sort of mental block that they have not yet identified. So these are people who will, you know, take action in every other part of their life. But in this one area, they seem to find themselves repeating the same mistake or getting stuck or getting trapped. And so I think, you know, when people use that secret weapon term with me, I feel like one of the things that I've found a little gift in doing is unkinking the hose, right? Where is yeah. this one mental block that if we were to remove that and really get clear on it and get it out of the way. It's like all of a sudden the proverbial, you know, hose flows, it's going and everything else follows suit. So that to me is some of the most fun work because little change, huge result. Um, but yeah, in general, I think uh, like I like to connect the dots, right? So, you know, people are very close to their own lives. Athletes, same thing. They're very close to their own lives. And you, that's why you need coaches. That's why you need people who can zoom out and say, I know this is what you think the issue is, but here's what I'm really seeing is the issue. And so that ability to be that third party, you know, I'm certainly not alone. There's a million talented coaches and speakers that can do this, but I think that's just such valuable supportive work for the people who need it the most. Yeah. There's a good balance. I think a uh, college teammate of mine, his brother played in the major leagues one time and I was talking to him. I asked him about coachability. I was mm -hmm. like, you know, you've had different, all these different pitching coaches in the major leagues and, you know, a different guy all the time. And, it's like, well, what do you, how do you be re stay receptive to what they're trying to tell you? And his, I think it, it was just something I took into my own life was, you know, he just brought in, you know, when I'm on the mound, I can feel what I do, but I can't mm. see what I'm doing. Yeah. And he goes, he can see what I'm doing and I can feel, and somehow we have to come together to create a great picture. And yeah, so I love I, that. it was just, that was a great way to just, I, I thought for him to see new coaching all the time was that they always see what I can't, you know, yeah. I, can, I can feel the pitch, but I can't see myself pitch. It's impossible yeah. until I use technology. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that framing. I think that's really powerful. And I think that that coaching relationship, that see and feel, and sometimes just being, again, you have to be able to accept what they're seeing, mm -hmm. um, yeah. to allow it to help us. But uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to play a fun game. We get to play with some of our guests that know some okay. other guests. Um, okay. So I'm going to name some people that I, I'm pretty sure you know, and okay. uh, you can uh, 
tell us what you think of them in, you know, hopefully one kind word. Uh, one kind word. Okay. You know, but um, we brought him up earlier, but uh, Travis Thomas. Delightful. Delightful. Love it. Love it. Uh, Colin Henderson. I knew you were going to say that. I'm like, I can't do that in one word. Best friend. I know it's Best two friend. words, but. Okay. That's fine. I think he's actually probably been involved in this game most in the podcast. No, most people yeah. know it. So it's good. Yeah. And then uh, another one uh, who I also very much endeared to is uh, Joshua Lifrak. Uh, joyful. Joyful. Most definitely. Well, uh, sorry to put you on the spot, calling out some it. of your friends, but uh, I love it. We like to try, and so I'll link up those people in podcast yeah. if you want to hear some of uh, the other mutual people him yeah. and I have been able to come across. So, uh, you it. talked about one other thing as we wrap. I wanted to ask one more mm -hmm. question. You talked about kind of the alignment, and you brought up energy. And I think um, I'm big on energy. Like, how do you you know create your energy, sustain it? Especially, I think is you know being someone that's like you said, an extrovert, you're out serving, you're out speaking, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. um, how do you create and sustain the energy to do what you do to serve as you serve? Mm, that's such a great question. I, uh, I'll i say the one most powerful learning for me in this regard is I'm high energy. I seem to have one of these like bottomless wells of energy, but because of that, my, my danger isn't how do I muster the energy? My danger is I will run so hard that I won't know when I'm starting to hit that breaking point until yeah. it's too late. So the way I've had to develop some tools around managing and sustaining my energy is, you know, I've needed to really learn how to be clear on when my metaphorical check engine light has started to go off. So identifying what are those triggers? What are those physical signs? What are those mental and, and emotional um you know, flags that I've started to go a little too hard because otherwise you can be super high energy and then crash and burn. And so yeah. for me, managing my energy is less about mustering the initial energy, but more about managing it as I start to get into heavy periods of endurance and knowing when to catch it before I go a little too far. Love it. Love it. Well, as we wrap up last question, um, you know, student athletes, coaches, definitely, yeah. you know, uh, get catch we get caught being awkward out in those performances sometimes yeah. it's just warming you up but uh what would be your your quick hitting ending advice to maybe any student athlete out there that uh may feel shameful about yeah. their awkwardness oh gosh i know athletes uniquely have you know a, a bigger spotlight on them people are watching i don't want to pretend that they're not but here's the truth the universal emotion of awkwardness is for everyone all of the athletes you admire, everyone that you think is flawless, they feel it just as acutely as you do. They've just learned to embrace it and realize it's part of the game that you're playing. So don't think that you're alone. The people you admire most, they experience it right along with you. So don't try to run away from it, get good at it.